Great to have you all here. Okay, so um, we're in Mark, and uh, we're in chapter 14. So uh, Mark ends in chapter 16, I believe, so we're moving towards the end. Want to jump right into this passage. And, and so this passage here is the last week of Jesus' life. And I want to start with a question as I get organized up here. And the question is this. Have, um, has your love for somebody ever been tested before? Has your love for somebody ever been tested. And raise your hand if your love has ever been tested. Okay, you're, you're human. You got a pulse. Your love has been tested. Okay. Um, what circumstances, and just think about this. Don't shout it out. Be awkward. What circumstances make it hard to love others? What circumstances in your life make it hard to love others? There is actually, uh, in this passage of scripture, there is a recipe um, to kill love that's active and at play in the life of Jesus. And it is this, how many of you know extreme pressure is not an environment where love grows very easily? Um, stress, fear, worry, and betrayal. All of these things are things that are, um, f- and we're talking about the Last Supper around this dinner table. Um, all of these things are things that are surrounding this dinner table as Jesus brings his 12 disciples together. And today, I wanna invite you into the end of Jesus's life Um, as a fugitive. Jesus is a fugitive running for his life where he continues to choose suffering love even when all hell breaks loose to destroy that love within him towards others. We see our example in Jesus of a suffering love that moves through some of the darkest things that humans can experience to still, to still, to still choose love. And so, um, scene one, there's two scenes and then uh, there's two points or what I like to call two implications of these two different scenes. There's many more, but I'm just highlighting a couple because, you know, the Bible is deep and wide and we can't venture into all of it. But um, the, the first scene is I'm calling the fugitive. So this is the fugitive Jesus. And if you turn back to uh, Mark chapter 14, verse one, because of time, I'm not gonna turn there, but you can... Um, Uh, Write it down if you want to look at it later. We see that Jesus was in these public debates within the temple, and we see religious leaders, people who hate Jesus, they're trying to publicly trap him, get him to break some sort of law, to be able to discredit himself so that Jesus would now be forced to go on trial and executed. So they're playing this chess match against Jesus, and they lose. And so these people who hate Jesus, they move from this strategy of, of, of trying to beat Jesus at, at debates and get him to cross some sort of legal line so that he can be charged and executed to now a secret plot to kill Jesus. They are secretly moving towards him. Um, there's a hitman out for Jesus and, and they, they want to take his life. So Mark 14 verse one talks about that. And uh, they secretly want to do that. Public trap to secret murder. And last week, Jen shared that Jesus was reclining secretly. He was in, in the house of Simon the leper, no doubt a man that Jesus healed because he's, he's, he's not a leper anymore if he's in that home. And, uh, and when one of the most beautiful acts of worship took place, a woman who was rescued out of her sin by Jesus poured out her most precious, um, her most precious belonging, uh, an alabaster jar full of perfume, poured it out onto Jesus and and so Jesus, after this, stays hidden for a couple days. And then it is in verse 12 that Jesus comes out of, um, that, that Jesus emerges, not out of hiding. He's still in hiding. So let me read verse 12 to you, and, and we'll go through the text. 
We'll go through the text line or a couple, a few verses at a time, a verse or a chunk. Okay, I'm gonna stop. Verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was a customary sacrifice uh, to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want to go to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? All right, so just to note this, some of you may know this, some of you may have no idea. You've heard the term Passover, but you don't know what it is. I'm not gonna spend a long time here, but it's simply put, it is one of the most significant Jewish holidays, and it celebrates their exodus from Egypt, their freedom from the oppression of the of Pharaoh and the Egyptians um, about, oh, about probably 1,500 years before this-ish. And, and so this is a moment marked on the calendar um, every year where, uh, you know, they would actually come, uh, Jewish people would come um, and make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the temple. They would have feasts, the Passover feast, and, and really it was a remember when moment. Remember when God led us out of Egypt. It was a time, in a sense, of worshiping God for the miraculous work that God had done in their past. And so there's so much more to it than that, but there's the cliff notes for you. And then let's move on to verses 13 through 17, and here's what it says. It says, so he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house, he enters. The teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. And the disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. And the Passover, you can actually see in the text, um, uh, you, can, you can see the preparations for the Passover. There's specific things that they would get ready for this, including a lamb. And so, all, and so they, they wanna get ready for this Passover meal. But what's so fascinating about this little chunk of scripture here is that here we get a clear impression that Jesus has gone completely underground, um, really covert, trying to not die too soon. Jesus knows he's moving towards death, but people want to kill him secretly. And we see this um, through this text in a few ways. Um, one is this, they, Jesus sent two of his disciples, they would have been spotted in a large group, um, and so Jesus sent two of his disciples to go because uh, one would be lonely and uh, two is not as inconspicuous as 12. And so he sent two of his disciples on this mission. And it, here's what it says. And this is so bizarre. How many of you know the Bible is sometimes bizarre and it's okay to say that? It is because we can't fit it into our brains. And so it just feels weird sometimes. Here's one of those times. It says this, a man carrying a jar will meet you. Okay, a man carrying a jar. Um, th there's gonna be a man identified by carrying a jar, which was probably a, a large thing filled with water, which in those days, um, you wouldn't see very many men carrying. So if you saw a man carrying that, it maybe stick out a little bit, but you'll see a man, and that's how you'll know that's the man you're supposed to approach. Don't, don't just approach anybody, right? There's a hit out on Jesus. Approach this man. And here's what came to my mind. This is what came to my mind when I... Um, when I heard that, uh, I thought to myself, okay, um, I, I, this is what happened inside of my brain. Where's the man with the jar, right? 
Oh, but it gets better. It gets better. It's not just a man with a jar. There's also a password involved. Okay, here's what it says. Um, this is the little boy in me that comes out sometimes. Anybody else hear soundtracks from time to time? Okay. Um, it says this. Say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks. Okay. It doesn't say Jesus asks. You're not going to use Jesus' name, right? Um, because um, what if it's the wrong house? I, I don't know. Yeah. The teacher asks. And, and here, it's, it's genuinely, it's like a code word. That when they say this statement, it'll be the cue for the owner of that house to invite them in to prepare the Passover meal. And when evening came, it says that Jesus came with the 12. Now, in the Jewish culture, there are two evenings. One starts at 3 o'clock and goes to sunset, and one is after sunset, so after the sun goes goes down. This is the second evening um, and when you look at this word in the original language. And so you get this impression that not only did Jesus send just two out to go meet a man with a jar to have a password to get into this house, to go up to an upper room off the ground floor, but also uh, they, Jesus and the, the rest of the disciples moved under the cover of night. And so... Um, so a runner, a secret location, a password, we can begin to see the kind of danger and the pressure that Jesus is under here. That in a sense, all the disciples are, are under here. And the Passover meal, um, has, this is really beautiful. And I, I don't know, okay, I'm, I'm not gonna turn there, but in Exodus 12, 11, um, the, the, pass, the very first Passover meal has some beautiful similarities to this. Um, where the Jewish people who are right, uh, right after one of the plagues, one of the last plagues, they're gathering together to eat the first Passover meal. And God gives them instructions to be ready to run at a moment's notice. It's in Exodus 12, 11. And you get this call back in this text to over a millennia ago when there's trouble at their door in the very first Passover as well. And there is trouble at Jesus's door as well in this Passover, and they are ready to flee, in a sense, at a moment's notice. So it's this really strange callback to the very first Passover. And here, this is what I want to point out. This is one of the, one of the first um, implications that stand out here. Here we see a flicker of truth that these disciples will need in the days ahead. Because as these disciples move forward in the days of the head, Jesus is going to, in a sense, well, Jesus is going to die on a cross. They're going to be sent still um, to walk through that time, that, that unpredictable, disruptive time, that time of sorrow when Jesus dies. And, and what do we do now? We were followers of Jesus and Jesus is dead, but Jesus rises again. And eventually Jesus ascends and they get this great commission to go into all the world. And eventually Jesus' spirit will be poured out on, on, on his followers. And, and, and so we have the presence of God with us, but it's not Jesus in the flesh and bone. And they're going to have to walk out their faith in everyday life. They're going to have to move forward into the future, living a life of faith. And so this little flicker that I'm going to share with you of a, of a truth really matters, that they see this pattern in Jesus's life. And here's the pattern, that Jesus is ahead of us, or in their case, Jesus is ahead of them. And I just found myself so struck by this, that following Jesus um, in a sense, is it's not a comfortable road. It's not a predictable road. Um, and I, as I began to think about my own journey around following Jesus, all sorts of stories came, have come up. And I've reflected quite a bit with our church family on our move here a couple years ago. But it brought me back to that. 
I remember when my family and I moved to Minnesota and we all felt led, all six of us felt led to move to Minnesota. And so we uprooted our family. Here's what was strange about this. Even for me as a pastor, as I'm coming to a a new church family, normally you actually visit with the church family before you actually decide to uproot your life, but it was in the middle of COVID. I didn't know who you were. And then when we show up, we're all sort of covered up and there's all this distance and it's like, I, in my heart, believe that God had gone before us. But how many of you know it's one thing to believe on the front side that God has gone before you and and still you take trembling steps of faith. It's not like, it's not the most confident thing in the world all the time. How many of you know that? And I'm like, I'm, I'm freaked out, but I think God's in this. And my kids even say that God's in this. I mean, Stephanie, we're all in this together and we take the step forward. And it's, what's interesting is we look back, it all feels like a miracle. We, we look back from our home to our friendships to even when Steph got sick. I, uh, many of you know my wife was sick for a, um, about eight months um, shortly after we moved here. And, and even how we were cared for um, by some of you, and you know who you are, I just felt like it was all a miracle that it was like every time we took a step, God was already, Jesus was already there. And in the sense, these two disciples are being sent out into sort of daylight, dangerous territory. People wanna kill Jesus. And it was just as Jesus said, Jesus was already ahead of them. Whether it was like a miraculous knowing of Jesus or whether Jesus pre-planned all of this stuff with people that he know, we don't, we don't know that. But what we do know is that Jesus sent them out by themselves, these two men, and Jesus was already ahead of them preparing the way for their Passover preparations. And this little flicker just caught my attention in the story. And, and here's a question I began to ask myself, um, a few questions. One, one is this, how much of our lives are predictable? How much of our lives are set on minimizing risk rather than following Jesus? How many decisions do we make in life that actually require Jesus' provision. And sometimes I wonder if our struggle, in my struggle, to see miracles is born out of living lives that don't actually require miracles. And because, I, I mean, I shared a story where we took a step of faith, but if I'm honest, there are many times where I, I, I look back and I'm like, I really think God was leading in a little way with the person at the grocery store or in a big way. And I said, no. But then there are those times where I took a step or a risk and maybe you have too. And it's like our faith, if it were a flower, just begins to bloom a little bit more and you start to come alive on the inside. And so, um, the fugitive Jesus is scene one, and I'm gonna, bring, I'm gonna try my best to bring it all together in the end. Scene two is this, the table. Are you with me, church family? All right, so we move from scene one to scene two. Somebody is, yeah. Anybody else? I see you. Um, scene two is the table, and I'm gonna start with just the first half of verse 18, and here's what it says. While they were reclining at the table eating. A table is it represents closeness and intimacy. I actually brought my table here. Part of the reason why I brought it here is because Steph is out of town, and so um, 
This table's pretty worn out, um, and I love it. I absolutely love it. When Stephanie and I were first married, uh, she was just finishing up college, and she oversaw a dorm of, or a building of, of girls. She was an RD, and uh, we had a, a apartment together, and one of the first things we bought was a, a table we could not afford. Anybody do, do things like that when you first got married? We could not afford it at all. Um, every Tuesday night, we would open up our apartment just to welcome anybody, any college students, to be able to just come in and hang out. We had so many people at that table. But then our, our life began to, our family began to grow, and we had four children. At, our kids are so close in age, at one point, all four were three and under for a little while. That's how close it. Oh, yeah, thank you. Um, so, no, I'm just kidding. But, but we decided to get a bigger table, and that's when we got this table about 12 years ago. And um, some of you, many of you have sat at this table, actually. Uh, I, and there's so many, I mean, you can see all the crafts that we've done at it, done on it. There's like colors everywhere, and, and uh, it's really worn over here. Maybe that's where I sit and eat, I don't know. Um, um, I, and there's actually, somewhere up along the edge, there's two holes. Yeah, right here, there's two holes. I don't know if you can see them. That's because um, when one of my daughters was real little, she had a bitty baby. You all know what that is, a bitty baby? And uh, this little baby had a high chair we got for her, or a, a chair that would attach to the table for her birthday, but it wouldn't attach to this table. And I woke up literally in the middle of the night and had this idea of how I can make it work. And uh, Steph walked downstairs because she heard a drill in the middle of the night. Let her tell you the story. I'm drilling holes in our table. Um, right there, I'm drilling holes. And she's like, what are you doing? I, and she tells me, I still can't believe you just drilled holes in the table in the middle of the night. Um, but there's so many memories. I think about this table <laughs> over the past 12 years. There's been a lot of fights at this table. There's been a lot of laughter at this table, a lot of games played. Uh, there was games being played with some of the neighbor kids last night. Um, there's been a lot of tears at this table. Tables are a place of intimacy, and it's actually so biblical. I don't know if you knew that or not. Um, tables are one of the most important places for human connection. My family and I, one of the things that we have tried to do and will continue to try to do is really redeem the family mealtime, um, partly because we see it as a primary place in Scripture. Tables are, are um, throughout the Bible, there is a consistent thread of God showing up at tables. In fact, what's interesting is at the center of God's people in both the Old and New Testament, at the center of it, we find a table with both Passover and communion. We find a table. And uh, N.T. Wright said this. He said, when Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what was forthcoming, uh, um, what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory. He gave them a meal. Fascinating. There's something sacred, just this tactile thing of being together and nourishing our bodies that also nourishes our souls. And so, I want to lift up the significance of the table to you and even bring in my own table um, for this purpose um, because it reveals the significance of who Jesus invites to his table. When we see the significance of the table, and in that culture, in the Jewish culture in that day, the table was even more intimate than how we hold it today. It was a big deal to invite somebody to cross the threshold of your home to be at a table with them and to break bread. It was a big deal. And so let me ask you this question as we continue through the text. Have you ever shared a meal when there was some sort of palpable tension at the table? Have you ever had that? 
where you're eating a meal and maybe you don't even wanna eat because there's just, there's just tension at the table. Anybody ever experienced that before? Come on, human beings in the room. Um, yes, and, and it's frustrating, especially if it's a good meal. Um, this really wasn't a tension, but I remember when I, I, I wasn't even planning on saying this, I, I took Stephanie's dad out to eat when we were dating to ask him for her hand in marriage. He still paid, I took him out to eat. Um, it was awesome, uh, still do that. Um, and, uh, and I couldn't, I mean, we were at a steakhouse, I couldn't eat. And finally he just stopped and said, Dave, if you don't ask her, I'm gonna ask her for you. <laughs> it's so funny, I'll never forget that. Um, but here, Jesus discerns something is hiding in the shadows um, of this meal, and, and Jesus is about to bring it to light. And here's what it says in verse 18, the second half. It says this, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one of you who is eating with me. Uh, talk about like now making Jesus's tension, everyone's tension at the table, one of you, and now everyone's examining themselves. I, 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 I read this and I thought to myself, well, Jesus knows Judas is gonna betray him. And here's a question I ask, how does Jesus know Judas is gonna betray him? And many of you, and, and I would say, Potentially, it's because Jesus is God and there's a supernatural aspect to it or this connection with the spirit that just allows Jesus to see and know things we can't know. And that could very well be the case. Um, but I also think that potentially it was more human than that. And here's how I know. I've been married 22 years uh, and will be 23 years this summer. And with Stephanie, if I sit down at the table and there is tension, I don't need fireworks to point that out. Like I know if there's tension, whether it's, uh, yeah, w w in our home. If I walk into the home, like I don't need somebody to go, there's something really hard going on right now. <laughs> hey, you just kind of know it when you've been in a family for a while. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You just do. And I pictured, I began to go through and think about Jesus and, his, and, and who he is and his time with the disciples. And here's what we know. Jesus is sensitive to human nature. So we know Jesus sees the room, sensitive to human nature. Um, some of us are more sensitive to that than others, but Jesus was very intuitive. He also, these were his close friends. Like he spent three years day in and day out, but not just an ordinary three years, a three years that probably felt like three decades, like a in, very intense three years. And intensity can bring you together day in and in, in, day and night. And Jesus also knows, listen to this, there's a prophecy in Psalms 41.9 that, that Jesus will be betrayed. It doesn't say necessarily that um, who will betray Jesus. It doesn't use a name, but there will be a betrayal. And Jesus knows all of this. And he's sitting at this table. And part of me thinks, oh, there's probably a really, because Jesus did come fully man, not part man, not superman, fully man, but with the identity as God. Laid down his privilege as God, um, the omnipresence, the omniscience, the, the all-powerful nature of God was born as a fragile baby, laid down that, but still carried the identity of God, but was fully man. I know it's crazy, but that's what scripture teaches. And so this feels like actually a human moment. And, uh, and in this, Jesus brought this hidden tension that he's experiencing in sin that's happening at the table, brought it to the light. Because that's what Jesus does. Scripture says that God is light and in him there is no darkness. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus does what Jesus does, brings things out of darkness and into light. And Jesus does it right at this table. 
And it's extremely uncomfortable. Extremely uncomfortable. I mean, I imagine, because I'm a human. So, um, sin is a trigger word for us when we use it. And part of the reason why it's a trigger word is because people um, in religious circles can use the word sin um, as a weapon. As a weapon, um, people who carry sins that aren't their sins, to be able to categorize sins to keep some people out and some people in. We see it in Jesus' day. We see it nowadays, nowadays that when we talk about sin and judgment and things that can be used in religion as a weapon towards other people. And, um, and so it can be a trigger word when I say the word sin. Like, ooh, it's a trigger word for so many of us. But here, Jesus set the table for confession. Not to, and we know this, not just because of this passage, because of the whole life of Jesus. Jesus didn't set this table for confession to attack and shame, but to heal, actually. Um, And the illustration I like to use with this, because when Jesus brings things to light, it is painful. But there's two kinds of pain when it comes to this. One is the kind of pain of an oppressor that's trying to hurt you. In this case, trying to make you feel shameful, trying to make you feel guilty. And the other is the pain that a surgeon causes. And a surgeon, when there's a sickness hiding in the shadows of our body, sometimes needs to cut real deep to bring that sickness out. Why? Even though it's painful, what are you doing? Like if you have no context for that surgeon, putting that scalp on your body, it's like, what are you doing? I have no, why are you cutting me open right now? But when you have the context, you realize, oh, it's because that's going to really kill me in the end, and this pain is to heal me. It's not an oppressor. It's the pain of a surgeon, a loving surgeon. I believe Jesus wants to do heart surgery on Judas, and in a sense, is throwing Judas a lifeline. And we'll get into this in a minute, because some of you actually might disagree, and I'm okay with that. Um, but it's, it's a sense of don't let this darkness grow. You can heal, you can heal. And as we continue through the text, in verse 19, it says this. They were saddened. Who's they? Well, it's all the disciples because Jesus called them all. Anyway, they were saddened. And one by one, they said to him, surely you don't mean me. Surely. And I was trying to imagine the mind games that would go on when Jesus says that one of you will betray me. And I'm thinking in my and like if I'm a disciple at the table, I'm searching my past going, what did I do? What did I do in my past? Did Jesus hear me when I got really upset at how slow he was walking and I, and I cussed at him in my brain? Did Jesus hear that? Like, what, what did I do? And I'm evaluating my life. Maybe I am the betrayer, you know? And I'm just wondering, like the mind games that are happening at the table here, and now it's Judas's turn. Everyone says, oh, it couldn't be me. And the person after, is it um, the actual, surely you don't mean me. Surely you don't. Sure, and now it's Judas's turn. And here's what's fascinating about Judas. Judas had already loaded the betrayal. He just hadn't pulled the trigger yet. And it got to Judas, and it's one of the most pretentious moments in scripture. Judas responds the same way. It says this, surely you don't mean me. He's already begun the betrayal. Judas's pretense of innocence must have broken Jesus' heart. And to me, this shows Jesus, but it also shows us looking back, the depths of darkness that's inside of Judas, this intention to play this ruse to the bitter end. Judas is gonna take this all the way. 
And that darkness in that pretentious moment comes to the surface and no doubt shook the heart of Jesus. And then Jesus calls out Judas's deceit more directly, narrowing the spotlight. And here's what he says in verse 20. It is, the one, it is one of the 12, he replied, one of you who dips his bread in the bowl with me. And again, my brain just goes to, well, what if I was about to dip my bread in the bowl um, and I'm sitting and I'm not Judas at the table and I'm going, I, I was just stirring. I wasn't actually dipping, you know. Um, but I just imagine what that's like. I don't know. It doesn't say, like, were there more people dipping their bread? We, we don't know. But there's this moment, this sort of exploding at the table. And it's like Jesus is narrowing it down, giving the, 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 um, uh, the line of confessions getting more narrow, the lane of confession. But Jesus is still narrowing it down, giving Judas an opportunity. In this moment, after seeing this deep darkness in Judas, Jesus' appeal then turns into a warning, and it's in verse 21. Jesus says this, the son of man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him to have not been born. Everybody say, woe. That word to us means all sorts of things. Um, But in this context, woe is used by Jesus, more than just here, but it is used by Jesus to describe a person or a situation where love can no longer make a difference. Woe. Jesus uses it with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees at one point in scripture. Woe to you, he says to them. And in that sense, this word woe, I love this term, but it's also a heart-wrenching term It's a verbal epitaph um, that had to have just shook the room. Did Jesus just say that? He's not talking to his enemies. He's talking to his disciples. And and so Judas is identified. His margin for confession is growing slim, yet his choice remains. And and I want to pause here for a second because not everybody agrees with that, that Judas has a choice. I do believe Judas has a choice, and you're okay to disagree, but I wanna tell you why I believe that Judas has a choice. Some would say no, because it was prophesied and Judas was predestined to do that. Um, It was prophesied and somebody is gonna betray um, Jesus, but I actually believe that it doesn't necessarily have to be Jesus, Judas, and Judas does have a choice in this moment because God gives us a choice, but here's why. Um, Here's why that I'd like to present to you. It's because of this. I, when I read something in scripture like this, it's a moment. And this is why we're teaching through a book of the Bible. And we're not just plucking one scripture and saying, yeah, um, you know, you know, Jeremiah 29, 11, you know, God knows the plans he has for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you hope and a future. Yes, that's beautiful, but there's a whole context around that. We're not just gonna pluck this verse out. Our hope is that as we teach through a book of the Bible, we don't just learn a portion of scripture, but how to read the scripture. And so what I do is I take this little piece of scripture and I hold it up to the pattern that I see in Jesus's life. And I say, does it fit the pattern of Jesus's life? Does it look like what I know of Jesus when I read the four gospels, when I read Paul's writings? And here's what we know of Jesus. We see a profound and distinct pattern in Jesus's life of restoring people, constantly restoring people who seem like they're at the bitter end. They're about to step off the cliff and Jesus steps in. 
And you think about the woman who was caught in adultery. You think about Zacchaeus. Um, you think about Peter, who hasn't even denied Jesus yet, but Jesus knows that he will, and Jesus eventually restores him. And then you think about the parable, parable of the prodigal son and how nasty that younger son was to take advantage of his father, to, run away, to, to walk away, and when he had nothing left to give, the father runs to the son. And we see this pattern in Jesus that I just don't think disappeared in front of Judas. And I'll explain a little more. There's a theologian, uh, who, who a, one scholar put it like this. Divine, uh, quote, divine sovereignty and human freedom are held in tension at this moment. God's foreknowledge, which sees Judas as the traitor, does not foreordain his act. To the very last moment, Jesus works for his redemption and Judas has a choice. So as we move to the end, the invitation becomes even more clear as Jesus, and hear this, invites all of them. And that word all matters. And that word all we see distinctly in the Gospel of Matthew, I'll point to in a moment, including Judas to take part in his body given for us and his blood shed for us. What? For the forgiveness of our sins. There's a lot of sin at that table. And so verse 22 through 24 says this. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. He said to them, truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink in the new kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so um, I, want us, I want to encourage us to remember um, that this is the Passover meal. And the Passover meal, meal is centered around remembering the exodus remembering how God set them free over a millennia ago, but Jesus here is initiating a new remember when. A new remember when. Remember when God um, made a way, not just, not just for the people of Israel over a thousand years ago, but remember when God made a way through Jesus for all of humanity to find freedom from the tyranny of darkness, here and now, not just trapped in the past, but here and now. Take the bread, my body given for you. Drink the cup, my blood spilled out for the forgiveness of your sins. So you can enter into a new relational covenant with God. And every time we do this, scripture teaches, not just here, but all over, that we're, we're to consistently do this as followers of Jesus. In fact, in the early church, when the church gathered around the communion table, it wasn't mostly in settings like this. It was in people's homes around the table. There wasn't a lot of pretense around it. They were eating a meal. Jesus built into this rhythm of daily eating meals and breaking bread that in this physical activity, we would continually remember why because we so easily forget the most important things. And this is one of those things in the Bible that if you forget it, you forgot it all. What's so beautiful becomes so poisonous when we forget the thing that holds it all together, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, and here's what just blows my mind. 
Jesus welcomed Judas to the table. And if you read in Matthew's gospel, 26, 27 through 28, I'm gonna read it. Um, Matthew 26, 27 through 28. It's not on the screen, but just listen to this. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the same moment, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for, for the forgiveness of sins. Do you not think that when Jesus is talking about his blood being poured out, inviting all of them to drink, that Jesus is not just compartmentalizing Judas' sin, but, but actually looking at all their sin and saying, this is, when Jesus says this is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins, do you think that there's one person who was welcomed to the table, who was on the outside looking in at that invitation. And so the, the, second, um, the, the second implication that I wanna share with you is simply this, simple. Jesus is with us, inviting us to his table of healing and intimacy here and now. Now here, here's what I'd like to do as I conclude um, this message today. I'd like to try to bring those two implications together as best I can. Um, one is that, that Jesus is ahead of us. I, I titled the talk today, To Keep Me on Track, The Here and Now Love of Jesus. The Here and Now Love of Jesus. Um, one is that Jesus is ahead of us. Jesus' love has prepared a way for us. And the other is that Jesus' love, is, Jesus is here with us right now in this moment. Um, so I wanna talk to you um, real quick, just uh, two, two different groups of people. One are maybe people who are followers of Jesus. Um, and two, maybe there's some of you here today where you're like, I haven't made that decision to follow Jesus. And can I just say, we are, not just me, we are so glad you're here. And that, that there's not, like I really don't believe that we follow Jesus from a place of pressure, but from a place of invitation. So arms are wide open but nobody's gonna force you. Like you're loved where you're at, for real. But as we talk about this, Jesus is ahead of us. That matters to the disciple, and here's why. Because as disciples of Jesus, we are called to live a life of faith. We are called to not let our American dream or our personal goals that we've come up with in our brain be the primary driver of our life. We have, we have a king we actually have a Lord. We don't understand that in the world of democracy. And that's okay. Like, that's okay. It's like, we have a king. That means our stuff isn't our stuff. It's our king's stuff. And when we're called to go, in a sense, if we truly come under this lordship, then we just obey. And that's scary because whatever it is, again, whether it's something little like that, like, like just um, starting a conversation with that person at work or, or you just have this thought, maybe I should pray with that person or, or maybe I should grow in generosity in my life this way or maybe I should you know, change my path, whatever it is. If we have a sense that God is leading, we, we go and discernment's a whole nother sermon and teaching around like what is the voice of God. But the idea is we have a king. We need to know that Jesus is, is there, is there ahead of us preparing a way because I don't want to get into the future and look back and go, what? where were you? 
And there are times in life where we do that, but we know, we know that we have this ultimate hope that when this life is said and done, this life is not said and done. So the second one is Jesus is with us. Well, this really matters for the disciple as well. And here's why. If you're a follower of Jesus, we must not just know that Jesus is ahead of us, preparing the way for our lives of faith, but we must also know, maybe even more, that Jesus is right here, inviting us to his table, experiencing his love and freedom and healing over and over and over again. Why? Because, here's, here's why, because we are on the front lines. As followers of Jesus, we are to be on the front lines living out our faith, and here's what that means. We are not less prone to attacks, we are more prone to attacks. Things are gonna happen, and here's what also happens. We as human beings, we drift. I drift. My heart drifts into darkness. I need to know as I move into the future that Jesus isn't just out there somewhere, but right here. I need the communion table here. I was saved a long time ago. I know, I know that my life is held eternally with Christ. I, I know that, I believe that, but there are all sorts of salvations in between then and that future. There are all sorts of times when I need to be saved over and over. I need to come to the table. I need to remember, I need to remember that in my darkness has creeped in that I am still loved by Jesus. I'm still invited to the table that his blood is still poured out, not just for you, but for me. That his blood is still, his body was given for me and for you. I need to know that. Um, because we're on the front lines. And this is important, and I believe this, because we all have Judas in us, and none of us are immune to darkness. And one of my, I'm in our culture, and I'm just gonna say this, in our culture, there is, um, there's so many pastors who have lost their way and it's one of my greatest fears as a husband, as a father, as a pastor and I can lose my way and so can you. And the communion table calls us back to healing and wholeness. All right, so I need to, I'm gonna end. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up together today and let me invite all of us to stand and um, we're actually gonna receive communion and I, and I talked a long time, blah, blah, blah. And so, um, uh, but here's what I mean. If you have to sneak out, don't sneak out. It's totally fine um, if you have to go. You don't have to feel any pressure. But we're gonna open up the communion table here today um, and I, I'm just gonna say this as we do. Uh, for those of you that are not followers of Jesus, um, you are welcome to come, if you are compelled by the love of Jesus and you, you wanna become a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to come to the table. This is symbolic of Jesus' bloodshed for you. So welcome to the table if you wanna take that step. But if you just wanna observe, that's fine too. That's fine too, um, if that's where you're at on the journey. We don't micromanage and, and create a lot of hoops for people to jump through to come to the table. Here's why. Because Jesus didn't. So um, those who are serving communion, the stewards, you guys can come get in place. And, um, 
If you don't know where to go, you'll see people starting to move around the room. There's gonna be people all around the room uh, who are gonna serve. They're gonna give you a little cracker to dip in, a little juice, symbolic of that first last, that first last supper of Jesus with his disciples. Um, and we're gonna take part in this as a rhythm of remembering that God is there in our past, redeeming our history, here in the present, welcoming us with love, and out there in the future, preparing the way for us as disciples. So Lord, inhabit this space as we receive together in Jesus' name, amen.